Welcome to Bonafide HPP, a podcast designed to educate and support the patients and caregivers of those affected by hypophosphatasia. As a mother and caregiver, host Deborah Fowler has discussions about this rare genetic bone disease with people from around the world. Join Deborah now as she speaks with this week's guest. All right, terrific. Physical therapy is such an important topic and one that's in high demand with HPP patients. Today, I'm joined by pediatric physical therapist, Dr. Donna Griffin of Shriners Hospital for Children in St. Louis. Thanks for being here, Donna. Oh, I'm so excited to talk with you. Oh, me too. Uh, you know, first question, I just want to take a step back because, you know, I, I've known you for years. How did you ever become interested in hypophosphatasia? So um, I've been a therapist at Shriners Hospital for Children for a very long time, uh, uh, working with pediatric patients, um, and we're basically an orthopedic hospital. So, um, but right adjacent to our department was um, our metabolic research unit. And so for years, um, I was treating, evaluating and treating patients with hypophosphatasia. I had no idea uh, how rare I knew it was a rare disease, but it wasn't rare for me because we had our research unit and patients were coming in weekly to be seen for therapy. We would work on evaluations, but also work on strengthening and, and different strategies um, with the kids who had maybe some developmental delays. And so um, for years, uh, I practiced as a physical therapist, therapist with those patients. And one of the things I noticed was it was hard. It really was difficult to get those kiddos stronger. Um, and in 2013, the, uh, Dr. White and the metabolic research unit approached us to help with some clinical trial work. <clears throat> and just slowly, I kept adding in different little, um, opportunities and, uh, to learn more about hypophosphatasia. And, um, we ended up being a part of some of the clinical trial work that went on, um, for asphatase alpha, um, I was approached uh, as, as a therapist to help come up with a protocol and some assessment tools that could be used with some of the kids with hypophosphatasia that were in the clinical trial. And we ended up participating in a work group, myself and several other therapists, to develop this outcome tool that was used to help take a look at some of the, the videos of kids and compare the historical videos to eventually wow. children that were treated. So. Um, that must've been, that that must've been some, amazing. Some, oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead. I was going to say that must, must've been so amazing to watch because you had the opportunity to really see how the drug was making a difference in children that you would be seeing, you know, coming back to the clinical trial, you know, time after time. So you probably could really see it firsthand how it, it may have been impacting that particular, um, child. Yes, and it was interesting to look back, to take a look back at, at Gates pre and post, um, you know, pre and post treatment eventually um, using this particular tool. And then I was asked to participate in a soft bones patient meeting. And I feel like that was such an important um, time because not only was I, I was asked to help educate, which, which were children and adults and families with hypophosphatasia, but I learned so much from them about what it was like to be an adult with mm. hypophosphatasia. That was one part that I hadn't seen in my practice. And right. from there, I just feel like I really, uh, things just kind of took off and I feel fortunate to 
be surrounded by experts and, and patients and families that are willing to share their story. Well, we, we love having you be a part of our community. So thank you for, for being interested and for your dedication and, and the, the contributions you've made to all of the um, therapeutic uh, expertise. That's it's really amazing. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you, we have a, a patient community online called um, HPP and me. And mm -hmm. that's where we had posted that we were going to have this podcast and we had a couple questions that came in. So I'm going to ask you some of the questions directly from the patients that we received. Um, the first one is, you know, I think a lot of people are used to having PT typically after a specific injury or focusing on a particular area of the body. But, you know, I think there's a mindset shift that happens because with HPP, it really is more of a way of life um, and a way that is an ongoing treatment rather than only when you have an injury. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, when you think that way and you kind of have that mindset shift, how should we be thinking about PT as a standard way of managing hypophosphatasia and the symptoms associated with it? Well, that's a good question. You know, physical therapy, I feel like is a very important part of the multidisciplinary healthcare team. So I know just from my own practice and listening to patients and families that you have multi um, specialists when you have HPP. And I think your physical therapist is one that can really help you um, figure out where, what your starting point is, um, help you come up with some strategies to overcome issues like bone pain, weakness, endurance, some of the main um, issues that patients and families are having. Um, and, and in the smaller children, you know, just making sure that, that from a developmental standpoint that they're advancing. So uh, mm -hmm. therapists are good at providing exercises and, and recommendations that, that can assist with being more functional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's so important for, for parents to know that, you know, this PT really is not um, something that is associated necessarily with um, a particular surgery, but it, it is something that when, when your child is complaining about something, really think about physical therapy as part of that team. And, and we try to, when we're, we're talking to patients about creating that multidisciplinary team, always making sure that PT is a part of it. Um, and I think a lot of the questions we get are, you know, not everybody has access to you. Not everybody um, has a PT specialist who knows about HPP. So it's that ongoing conversation and many times patients educating their own physical therapists around HPP. And I think one of those um, areas of education that I think people could really benefit from hearing from you about is how do you know, you know, sometimes when you're doing PT, there, there can be some things where you're pushing yourself, you know, maybe it's a range of motion or maybe it's a stretch and maybe you're stiff. But, you know, there's sometimes there's that good hurt and then there's the bad hurt. And how do you know um, which is which? And how do you really keep in mind that, you know, you wouldn't want to do any damage, obviously, if you have something like hypophosphatasia? Sure. Well, I think, I think in talking with patients, um, and especially the adults, I think the adults tend to probably have a, a, a more of a daily acceptable level of pain that they associate with their diagnosis you know, that may be bone pain, it could be arthritis um, that, that are related to the diagnosis. And so as a person, you know, your daily acceptable level, 
if that changes for some reason um, and you have a bad hurt that may be a sudden pain um, or and you can't all of a sudden you can't wipe air on your foot, then you need to kind of know that that bad hurt that's a sudden pain could indicate a fracture or or some other issue. If it's an achy pain that you have that seems to be associated with prolonged sitting or uh, a particular activity that you're doing, then you know it's important to think about. Uh, where that could be coming from. If, if you change position and you, you uh, change your activity, if you're sitting, if you sit at a desk every day and you have hip pain and you get up and walk around and that seems to make things better, that may be indicative of some sort of impingement. And so um, in that instance, you can adjust your, your chair, your bike, um, your car seat, if you're on a long ride, or you can choose to get up and move around to alleviate hip pain. And, and that pain's not as worrisome. Mm -hmm. You know, I think most of the time when when patients or families, you know, children even are thinking of a good hurt, you know, if you're somebody who likes to work out and you can tell that you worked out the day before because your muscles are a little sore, um, but it's something that goes away within a day or so, that's probably what I would consider a good hurt. It's a little bit of a soreness from a normal workout, but it goes away. Yeah. So um, if you ever have a bad hurt that doesn't go away, you really do need to look into it. Um, and I think you need to have an idea a lot of times um, of what your resting motion is like. So mm -hmm. um, it seems in adults, sometimes you have a limited hip range of motion, and that's kind of one of the things that goes along with HPP. And so it's important if you're going to therapy to try to improve that, um, that you really know what your starting range of motion is and what your bone health is, meaning are you fragile um, or do you have a good uh, bone health? And also, um, you just need to have an idea of whether a therapist is is getting a softer and end feel. You know, when you stretch a muscle, a soft end feel is if you're stretching, you feel it give a little bit. But if you get a hard end feel, like like a bone on bone bump where things really aren't moving, then maybe you shouldn't be stretching. And so, I think that's important at that point to to bring in your um, if you have an orthopedic physician that's been looking into your bone pain, or you have a metabolic physician that takes a look at your bone density to bring them into that situation and make sure that we have all the information because not all therapists are going to understand HPP. So I think it's important to be an advocate for yourself and realize that if it doesn't feel right, you may need to check into it a little bit further. Yeah. 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 I think that's good advice. I think it's speaking up and having that ongoing dialogue and not being passive in your treatment. You know, I think really having that discussion point because, you know, therapists are, are probably looking for that kind of feedback, right? Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. And sometimes patients may have, um, whether it be children or adults, you know, your, your posture and the position, especially your foot position can affect, um, can affect and, and or cause you to have discomfort in your feet, or it can put you in a position where you're more likely to fracture. So sometimes when you have a pain, especially if it's your feet, it may, may um, mean that you need to consider some sort of orthotic or some sort of assistive device or something that helps lessen your pain. So um, again, in the adult population, you may be untreated, maybe a brace or maybe an orthotic, or maybe even an assistive device like a, a cane or a crutch temporarily will help you get through uh, a pain that seems like a bad pain. That actually leads perfectly into another question. And that was, um, you know, what are the benefits of orthotics? You mentioned some about, you know, stabilization, but 
you know, we hear a lot of patients who talk about SMOs, AFOs, orthotics, you know, and their role in correcting um, HPP. And I think there's some questions about the role of these uh, corrective devices. Are they meant to correct potential deformities or prevent deformities? Um, and in some cases, uh, there may already be some deformities that have occurred. You know, can AFOs help with some of those? So I just wanted to you know, open up the conversation around um, orthotics and, and really their, what are they used for and how do they help? So it's, I think orthotics get confusing too, because we have all these little, um, you know, an SMO and an AFO. I, I often have people come in and call it a UFO. And so that, you know, <laughs> just even the naming of that can be confusing. Yeah. And that, that with hypophosphatasia, it's like, gosh, you've been yeah. learning all different kinds of words here. That's right. Um, but, you know, orthotics are really, they, they're best used for a flexible deformity, I would say. Um, in the instance, in that instance, they're providing support. So if you have a person who's very pronated, which means they have a flattened arch, <clears throat> you can see a tilt when you stand behind them in their, in their calcaneus or their heel. Sometimes an orthotic in that instance, if their foot is flexible, can be used to support their arch. <clears throat> that helps you set your foot up for a better, even weight-bearing surface. Um, when you're in pronation, it puts a lot of pressure, uh, not only on the medial part of your arch that's on the ground, but it also puts some stress on those metatarsals, which tends to be a fracture site in adults. So sometimes uh, a brace can be used to be supportive. Um, and then other times, if you have very limited motion and you may have arthritis, if that motion that you're experiencing, and in that instance, you may have a very fixed range of motion, but you have just a little play there that makes it painful for you. Sometimes a brace can be used to immobilize and alleviate pain. And so if you have ankle pain because you don't have much motion, um, sometimes a brace can help get rid of some of that pain uh, that is a bone, you know, bone on bone probably situation um, that's causing discomfort. And so I think the most important thing to realize is they're, they're used for support. Um, they're used to prevent deformities in the fact that if you let that flat foot sit on the ground, muscles start getting tight around there. So it can help prevent future deformity. Um, <clears throat> but I don't know that it's really going to ever help reverse a deformity. You know, if you have a flexible foot, can you put one uh, in your shoe later in life and it will help you? Yes. But if you have developed a fixed deformity, a brace or an orthotic is only going to holds you where your body allows you to go. So it will, it won't, it can't change your range of motion, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and, and it's, it's interesting because I know, you know, even dealing with my own son, you know, those orthotics, you show him them and he wants to run the other way. He's like, oh no, mom, that's going to make my cool Nike sneakers, you know, look yes. all stretched out. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that as parents with, with children, you know, that can be hard to, to get them to get into a habit of wearing them. Do you, do you, do you have any tips? I agree. On that? Yes. You know, um, a lot of times, well, for small children, uh, sometimes it's helpful with balance too, but, um, you want to use your, um, orthotics when you're number one weight bearing, um, because that's when it's going to help you. It's not going to help when you're, you know, as much when you're sitting down, except to hold a position, but, um, when you're being most active. So if you have pain or instability, that's affecting your balance or your endurance, when you're, when you're moving and you're functional and you're trying to participate in activities, that's probably the most important time that you would want to wear them because it's, 
it's helping you get to do something that you want to do. Yes. It's helping keep you from being in pain while you do it, um, hopefully. And um, it may allow you to walk farther, you know, get from point A to point B with a little less discomfort. And so, you know, there are times where you probably need to take that brace off and, and let your feet be free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if you can kind of, you know, cut a deal with yourself as an adult mm-hmm. or um, talk to your child about how maybe this is really important when you go run out and play when you're out running and playing in the grass with your friends. But when you come inside, we're going to take it off for take them off for a while um, is probably the best way to approach that. Yeah, it's what was uh, one of the things when he got his latest set of orthotics, the the um, the person who fitted him gave us some very good direction about easing into it, you know, wear it for go for a walk for an hour, you know, for the first day and then, you know, give it a break and, and kind of break into it almost like you would a new pair of shoes. And when he did that, now he he's realizing that I said to him, are your ankles still bothering you? He said, no. And I said, well, see, you know, this is what happens when you wear your orthotic. So I think once, you know, a child, especially a child who's experiencing some discomfort from, you know, the issue that is causing them to need the orthotic can really have an appreciation for it once they kind of get past that wearing in period. Yeah, I, I think that definitely because they've learned that it helps yeah. me play harder. It helps me be more comfortable. Exactly. And sometimes you can find supportive. Um, sometimes you can find supportive inserts to put inside your shoe that are yeah. not as visible. You know, it really depends on what what the issue is that is being addressed. But um, you know, cowboy boots, higher ankled tennis shoes, and um, boots are a little more supportive. And sometimes that can help you get through some of those times where you're not going to wear a, a brace that can be seen and, and help manage that uh, being a more reasonable situation for your child or teen. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to move on to the, to the next question. Uh, and, and some people, you know, we have some very active members of our community who are very into um, staying in shape, exercise. We have some runners um, and there's a lot of questions we get just around staying physically fit, including weight bearing exercises. And there's a lot of questions around, should people with hypophosphatasia be doing um, weight bearing exercises, lifting weights to help strengthen their bones and whether or not that advice would change if you're on or off therapy. And so I, I think an answer to that, um, whether you're, whether you're on or off therapy, I think in that instance, you're just considering again, your bone health. So, um, it's always good to be active. It, it stimulates uh, strong bone. And so that's definitely important. Um, and you have to be careful though, that this is an individualized question and answer. So, you know, it depends on, it depends on your bone health. It depends on your strength. Um, and you want to talk to your multidisciplinary team of healthcare providers, whether it be, uh, your orthopedic doctor, your therapist, to make sure that you're participating in the right activities. So, uh, for instance, going for a walk is good. And when it comes to stimulating bone, um, walking and activities such as running are good, but it may not be good for you if you have some issues with fragility in, in, in the bones in your feet. So, um, I think finding safe exercises is where a therapist can be helpful to you. 
um, so that you are picking things that are doable. So for instance, yoga and Pilates are, are very sometimes stretch oriented, but Tai Chi is very slow moving activity where you're, you're not having to do any high impact, but you're, you're, you can be strengthening and still getting some, um, you know, activities that are going to work on strengthening. If you're trying to work on weight bearing and, and running is what you like to do, then as long as it's safe, um, from a bone health standpoint, and you're using, uh, orthotics to help make sure your feet are in a great position and supportive running shoes that are built with a little more, um, stability in the arch and, and you're not painful, then, um, you're kind of judging that based on your symptoms and what you know about yourself. Right. Um, sometimes swimming ends up being the best activity. If you're somebody who's extremely fragile or your status post a fracture, um, because that's going to help strengthen the muscles and give you support around those bones that are healing. And so it really just kind of depends on what stage you're in. Um, and you specifically, you know, as, as a person with HPP. Okay, great. Uh, you know, another question that came in, uh, again, more of a specific question to a particular patient, but I think that the message around communication with your physical therapist is an important one, especially with some of the maybe not as common aspects that you see in HPP, um, like calcium in a particular joint or um, calcium buildup in a particular part of the muscle. And this person in particular talked about calcium crystal deposits in the lumbar spine. Um, how do you recommend that patients have these conversations with their physical therapists and when should they get the doctor involved? So I think just creating an awareness of these specific issues that are associated with HPP are really important because not all, uh, not all therapists that you see are necessarily necessarily going to um, be a specialist in HPP. So they are obviously trained in range of motion, strengthening, endurance, gait, all those things. But um, you're, as a, as a patient, you're probably going to be most aware of the current research on your diagnosis, because that's something that you follow uh, with all your physician visits uh, and such. And so, you know, there's, there's different ways you can go about making sure that your therapist is informed. So you can provide them resources and, and be an advocate as you talk about your symptoms, but um, you can also, you know, officially sign a consent form to have some of your records sent to your therapist. So they get the most current, you know, and updated information. And they're in the loop of, of your care that's being provided by specialists um, if they're not from a specialty center. Um, and you can also share, uh, you can choose to unofficially share x-rays and findings from a report, or again, you can sign consent forms that that keep them officially in that loop, um, depending on what your relationship is. Yeah, I also think, uh, I know that you're going to be doing an upcoming echo session um, on physical therapy. And I think that that's also an excellent resource for patients who are listening uh, to potentially point their physical therapist in the direction of so they can become more educated. It's a resource specific to HPP that they can uh, watch and, and really start to understand what some of the concerns may be when treating an HPP patient. Well, and there are certain tests, special tests that are used and have been used in the research of patients that have HPP that, they're, that are also used in, in just regular uh, physical therapy, things like a six-minute walk test that might tell you uh, a little bit about endurance and um, 
And that's something that a therapist can use to watch over time, get a baseline on how you're doing and see if you are improving or maybe you're in the middle of a decline that's associated with something else that has to do with your care or treatment. So um, I think it's important, you know, to provide the therapist some resources. And I feel like the Softbone site can be that resource, or like you said, the Teleecho. Mm-hmm. Um, we also created a, 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 a therapy um, sheet. And I know there's research also that kind of looks at the different types of special testing that a therapist could use if you're uh, an infant and a child versus uh, an adult. And so uh, I think as much as we can educate them on some of those special tests, then they can best share their information that they're getting from their evaluation with your doctor. Um, and then they're working in you know, collaboration with each other to um, make the best you, you know, yes. and make sure that you're doing, you're doing the best that you can um, in functioning every day, so. Right, right. You know, the last question, I, if I had a, a, a dime for every time I heard this question asked over the years, you know, I, I'd be a rich woman, but I, we hear, from so many parents, especially parents of, um, you know, ch- children that are just diagnosed, who are concerned about letting kids be kids, you know, just you know, letting them go on, a, learn to ride a bike or go on a jungle gym, or, you know, now it's skateboarding, or, you know, my friend asked my, my child to go skiing, you know, I, and I think that it's, it's really hard as parents, because, you know, we never want to tell our kids they can't do something right. But, you know, we also are concerned because, you know, because of HPP and the spectrum of severity, you know, some kids are very fragile or maybe very prone to fracture. And, you know, when do we say, you know, no, and how do we, how do we know when that, where that line is? Do you have any advice on that front? I think that's such a hard, that's a hard one to answer, but I think the answer is going to be different for each individual person. And and again, it's going to be based on their bone health, their strength, um, their endurance, their balance, because if you have any one of those factors that is uh, a primary problem for you, it may affect your participation in that activity. So um, it's a good discussion to have with your physician. It's a good discussion to have with your therapist. And then try to come up with strategies of this is my goal. I want to get stronger so I can go do this activity that I want. And I'm, I'm fearful right now that maybe my balance is a problem. And that may lead to some other strategies that you can come up with, like maybe an orthotic helps your, you uh, be in a better position so that you can kind of be proactive and prevent something that could potentially be uh, an injury. But I think you know, there are certain, there are certain activities in this world that all orthopedic surgeons love. And, and those are some of those things that you've mentioned, like skateboards, jungle gyms, mm-hmm. trampolines, yep. you know, all those trampolines, things. Yes, right. yes. I think you just have to do it in moderation. And, um, if it's something that you're really concerned about, then you, you know, for sure check on your, uh, on your bone density, because I feel like that's, that's going to be one of the biggest problems is if you're, if you, you know, but you could fracture yourself riding a skateboard or playing on a jungle gym, you know, no matter what, it's just, mm-hmm. if you're, if your bone is a little more fragile, it's, it's more likely that you're going to have a fracture than somebody who's, you know, maybe a little stronger. So that's a tough one. I don't think there's a good answer necessarily, uh, that fits everyone. It's going to be an individualized, um, discussion and a challenge for all parents always probably. Yeah. And it's not one that you would necessarily can go to your doctor to ask, right? Because so much of it is 
a, a judgment call, how much the child wants to do it, you know, the bone health to your point, their strength, you know, the, all of those things kind of come into play. And you look at the risk reward when it comes to some of those things. You know, I know that, you know, as a mom of a son with HPP, I struggled with this quite a bit. And it was always the, you know, overprotective mom, you know, who was making sure that he wasn't doing anything dangerous. But then after a while, I realized, you know, he's got to learn some of this on his own. And, um, you know, I think also just having conversations with him as he got older about some of the risks and letting him have a little bit of part in the decision was uh, kind of a, a key learning for me. Yes, and I think that's 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 good as well. I um, oh, I had a thought here. <laughs> um, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the fact that um, it's it's kind of like our conversation earlier on bracing. I think you need to kind of gradually work yourself into those activities if you're concerned about it, but your child wants to participate. That you start slow. You know, whether that be something like horseback riding or like you're saying uh, skateboarding, that they start slow and don't get into that extreme, you know, um, sport activity too quickly, but just see how it goes right. and make sure that it's working for you. Um, and I think letting your adolescent start helping make some of those decisions is a, a really good answer that you just came up with. Um, because, you know, there's a cause and effect and I I've watched, uh, a young man who, um, once treated was able to go on to be the lacrosse goalie. So, you know, should you really tell anybody they can't do anything? Exactly. Uh, exactly. A, a child and an adolescent will always prove you wrong. You should never say never, yep. <laughs> but yep. you just have to keep that safety factor in mind, I think. Yeah, agree. Well, Dr. Griffin, thank you so much for sharing your incredible knowledge with us today. And we look forward to continuing the discussion in, in the future. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. And I look forward to uh, uh, meeting more patients and families because uh, I feel like I definitely learn from everybody each time I do. So absolutely. Well, you've been listening to Bonafide HPP, a podcast of Soft Bones, the U.S. Hypophosphatasia Foundation. Join Deborah and other patients on HPP and me where they continue discussing questions around hypophosphatasia and submit questions for the next podcast. Go to softbones.org and click on community, then HPP and me for instructions on how to sign up. This podcast and the intro music was produced and edited by me, Patrick Jaguer.